Please be seated. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 119, verse 97. Psalm 119, verse 97. You'll find the notes to this morning's message in the bulletin, or if you're joining us online, should be there with a link at the website. And I'll remind you that we're studying both the book of James and Psalm 119 concurrently. We go through a paragraph, a, a unit of James, and we go through a week or two in Psalm 119. The reason for that is Psalm 119 is long. It's the single longest chapter in the Bible, and yet it is rich. And so I thought that trying to get through it all in a week or two would be a waste, and we'd miss too much. And yet going through it for 25 straight weeks may become wearisome, and so alternating seems a good idea. And I'm delighted this morning to see that the themes of this morning's um, paragraph or strophe line up very well with what we've been reading in James. Um, Psalm 119 is an extended acrostic. Each section of eight verses begins each line of those verses with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The equivalent in English would be eight verses beginning with A, and then eight verses with B, and then C. And we're up to the mem strophe or paragraph. And the psalm focuses singularly on the psalmist's relationship with the word of God and the God of the word. And in previous um, sections have reached a peak of suffering and anguish. And this morning's text serves as sort of an oasis of rejoicing. There's not a single petition in these eight verses. The structure, as I'm seeing it, is a confession or an exclamation of joy in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. And again, another in 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. And then description of the effect God's word has on the psalmist. You could almost feel it as why I love it and why I find it sweet. It's, it's a wonderful section, um, just centering on praise, rejoicing, delighting, ultimately seeing and savoring God's word. I'm sure some of you pick up that I'm borrowing a title from John Piper's book, but I think it's a good way of coming at this. I think for some of us, this may be where you're at. You are just enthralled and delighted with God's word. Here, here is praise you can pray, sing to God. For others of us, this may seem distant. You may remember times in your life when you felt this way, but it's not where you are now. I, I, I suggest that this psalm gives us keys, hints, at how to get at this. God would have his children sincerely sing these eight verses to him. Let's begin by reading them. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Lord God, it is my prayer that you would um, give us hearts that can sing these words sincerely. Give us a love for your word, for your precepts, for you. Instruct us in your word. Guard our feet from evil. Cause to rise up within us both a love for you and your word and a hatred for evil. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said a moment ago, I I consider this psalm to be two exclamations, two declarations of praise, followed by a lot of reasons to bolster them. You can see how verse 9 begins with I, 100, I, I, I. This is confession. This is autobiography centered around these motes of praise. And do not forget this oasis exists in a psalm that is largely focused on suffering and crying out to God. Just look at our next section, verses 105. Look at verse 107. I'm severely afflicted, O Lord. Give me life according to your words. 109, I hold my life continually in my hands. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me. So the danger is not gone. The suffering is not removed. The anguish has not disappeared. Rather, he focuses his mind and his rejoicing on God's word. I'd encourage you this morning to do the same thing. I know a lot is going on in the world around us. I know we live in peculiar times. And I I suspect good medicine for your heart and for mine would be to pause, to stop, to see and savor God's word, to rejoice in it, to confess to God how good he is for it. So let's begin by seeing the wisdom of Of God's word, seeing the wisdom of God's word. And here's where I see the tie in with James. We've just, of course, come out of James chapter 3, considering the distinctions, how to identify God's wisdom and its fruit, and the world's wisdom and its fruit. And we considered the fact that, biblically speaking, wisdom is not knowing things, wisdom is not reciting things, wisdom is being able to live things. Specifically, to live wisely is to live in keeping with your environment. God, of course, being your first and foremost environment. We, we considered that in, in a difficult, godless world, it takes great wisdom to not act, to speak, to be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We've also considered that the author of Psalm 119 is likely someone in the exile, someone off the land. The presence of foreign kings and foreign dignitaries, the enemies, the absence of temple worship. In fact, we consider that someone like Daniel is a good fit. I'm not saying Daniel wrote it, but we'll look at Daniel today. I think you'll see that at the very least, Daniel exemplifies the truths of much of this psalm. And as we feel more and more as strangers in a strange land, I think this is a very helpful psalm for us. And so we need God's wisdom. And the psalmist rejoices in God's word because of the wisdom it gives. So seeing the wisdom of God's word. First, in the first statement in verse 97, his adoration of God's word. His adoration of God's word. It just comes out, oh, how I love your law. It's, it's, it's not just a statement of fact, I love God's law. It's, oh, it's, 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 it's coming out exuberantly. 
This is experiential. It's not just head knowledge. This is emotional. Um, what the Puritans would call the affections. This is, this is real delight and love of God's. And I put God's word, but I think it's interesting to note the word law there. Um, maybe I'm not the only one to consider this, but it seems an odd thing to love a law. I don't know if you have ever thought, man, I love Iowa's penal code. <laughs> oh, how I love the DMV's rules. It may, no, no, pause and consider that, right? Why? Well, first of all, because human laws are fallen, broken, and oftentimes stupid, at least to my opinion, right? No, no, right? But there's another reason we don't generally rejoice in law, because we don't like being told what to do. Because we think we know best. If, if you're wondering, how do you get to a place of loving God's law? I'd suggest that even in this opening line is a suggestion that humility, recognition, I need governing. Oh, I do. I don't know everything. I don't know what's best. I need rules. I need precepts. I need guardrails. I need commandments. I need a heavenly father to tell me what to do. I need a sovereign king to command his servants. If that's not your attitude, you you may struggle with loving God's word. So right off the bat, we notice this humble acceptance that I don't know everything. Maybe you've had this experience. I was recently trying to change the water filter at my house. And oh, how thankful I was for the YouTube videos and the instructions. So I'm sure when you've tried to put together the bookcase from Ikea, you've had moments of, I am thankful for these rules. If your goal is to know God's mind... If your goal is to be pleasing to him, if your goal is to be more like him, then you will delight in his law. If your goal is to be your own boss, do your own thing, be the authentic you, you're going to have trouble making this declaration that you love law. I, I know that in the Bible, law means more than just commandments, but it doesn't mean less. And if you think it's only the Old Testament that has commandments, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. King Jesus has Commandments. You gotta love them. God would have you delight in them, not grumble at them. It's it's our country's founded on rebellion. It goes deep in us to want to kick. Don't tell me what to do. And God would have His people say, "I love your law." That's His confession. That's where this starts. He just just busting at him. Oh, how I love. Your law. It's a constant theme in Psalm 119. A little later in verses 163 and 165, he writes, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace of those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Okay. So that's his confession. And then the second half of this line gives his confirmation. Um, we, we live in a day and age where you don't know my heart, but the psalmist assumes a link between how he feels and what he treasures and what he does. I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. What, what confirms? How, does, how do we know he really does love God's law? Because it's easy to show up on Sunday and sing songs about what I love and what I adore. But show me what you think about. Show me what you talk about. Show me where your mind naturally goes when it's free to do what it wants, and I'll show you your God. I'll show you what you worship, 
what you view as valuable. And the psalmist connects a heartfelt, passionate, emotional love for God's law with, it's, it's what I think about all day long. And again, this is not hyperbole. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, you know this. Let me read this to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Or even more familiar, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I I truly believe you can't be thinking about God's word too much. I don't think that's possible. And so the psalmist confesses his love for God's law. He's confirmation that he, he's thinking about it. He's talking about it. And now he's going to give us his advantages from God's word. Again, maybe some of you showed up here today. That, that's where you're at. I love God's law. Others of you, this seems like a high, lofty mountain peak. I, I value God's law. I know it's important. It's sometimes kind of a chore to read. Okay, okay. Let's gaze upon the advantages, the blessings. The, the, the seeing here is to see its goodness, see its value. And in seeing its value, appraising it more highly. So let's take a look at some of the advantages. His advantages from God's word. Now the first three line right up, you could just summarize it as wisdom. Let's read them. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Your commandment, sorry, makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies or my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. In all three of these statements, you have a modifier of comparison. More, more, wiser. That's the contrast. He... The psalmist, because of God's word, has more wisdom. And we get three categories. His adversaries, his teachers, and the aged. Let's consider these. Let's consider these. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Now, there is a wisdom to evil. Jesus recognizes this. Remember that the sons of this age are shrewder or wiser than the sons of light. There's a, a wisdom to the shrewd manager who rips his employer off so that he'll be protected later. We've seen the psalmist enemies lay traps for him. There's a cunning cleverness to them. And yet God's word, God's law makes the psalmist wiser than them. Um, you, you may recognize that you have enemies in the world around you. I have no doubt there are people in the political sphere who you don't like what they're doing, leaders of the world that you don't like what they're doing. If you have God's word, you are wiser than them. If you hold to it. Now we're going to see, again, wisdom isn't just knowing things, it's doing things, it's connected. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Why? It is ever with me. How's that? Because I'm meditating on it. I'm reading it. I'm thinking it. 
You're going to be wiser than your enemies, not just by knowing things, but by rehearsing, rereading, meditating, considering things. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Reinforcing that. And again, I think suggesting that this psalm is written in a foreign land. If David wrote this, his teachers would likely be godly people. I don't think this is some young upstart just claiming to know it all. Rather, these are wise teachers who are not wise in the ways of God. The aged And in the Bible, gray hair is a sign of glory, a crown of glory. Because of the way technology keeps coming, we live in a world that oftentimes despises age. I mean, you probably don't even know what Facebook is. Um, The Bible assumes wisdom comes with age. So the, the statement, I'm wiser than the aged, is a bold claim. I, I can think of a one, turn, turn to Daniel chapter 1. I just want to read this to you. I think we can see this exemplified in, in Daniel chapter 1, what this looks like. And I, I've commended to others, and I'd commend to you reading the early chapters of Daniel. If you want to see a model of how to live wisely, with integrity, without compromise, and yet showing the honor that God would have us show wicked rulers, you got no better example than Daniel. Daniel does not compromise. He doesn't flinch. And yet he speaks with honor to his officials, and God honors him. I think this is a good roadmap for us in living in difficult times. And I just want to read, actually, the chapter 1 with you briefly, just to show you this. If you will remember, Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem and Israel captive in three successive waves. And in one of the earliest waves, he takes kind of hostage the nobility's children. It's one of the ways to try to get Israel to pay tribute, to honor him, to submit to his rule. They keep rebelling, so eventually he comes and destroys the temple and takes all the utensils and scatters them. But Daniel is, is one of those people that you could say are kidnapped. The, the equivalent would be some foreign nation invading here and taking our brightest and best young children away to a foreign land. That's, that's what Daniel's living in. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the, his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. This is a pagan king, godless pagan king. God will eventually get a hold of Nebuchadnezzar, but at this point, he's a bad man, a wicked man. In chapter 2, he's going to make a golden statue of himself and demand people worship it. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature, the language of the Chaldeans, to re-educate them, teach them the Babylonian way, customs, religion. By the way, if you've been entrusted into the care of the chief eunuchs, you are likely a eunuch. Can't be certain on that point, but Daniel's never said to Mary, no kids. And we know it fits the pattern of kings. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch in the court of Candace? You, if you pay and feed and house your eunuchs well, you can trust them with your harem, and they're harder to corrupt. They're harder to turn against you if you take care of them well. 
It's pretty common practice in those days. So Daniel likely has been kidnapped, taken away to a pagan land, likely made a eunuch. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate, of the wine he drank. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. So Daniel's name, the Lord will judge or the Lord will vindicate me. He's now named after a pagan god. That's the bell attachment. So he's given a new name. His cultural heritage erased. That's what they're trying to do, at least. Think of the suffering, the mistreatment, the tyranny against him. But Daniel resolved... He would not defile himself with the king's food, with the wine that he drank. Why? Because Daniel's aware of the dietary laws of the Mosaic law. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So when I read, I have more understanding than my teachers your testimonies and my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Daniel is a wonderful picture of that reality. Whether or not he wrote Psalm 119, I don't know. He could have. It's about as good a fit as I can come up with, but certainly I think Daniel exemplifies pictures, shows us this. Um, turn, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 just briefly. Two months ago, um, Jacob Moore preached from the end of chapter 1. Um, and I just want to highlight again to you, we can feel at times as though we are in the minority, uh, we've got things against us, we can feel intimidated, and I would have you take courage that if you will take God to this word, if you will meditate on his precepts, and as we'll see in a minute, Try to do them. There's no wisdom and meditation apart from endeavoring to keep and do. You are going to be wiser than the wisest people in this world as God defines wisdom. 
1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly that was preached to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We, we have access to the mind of God. Jump over to chapter 2. I just want to read one other passage here. Stunning. Verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We of all people can look at the world around us and make sense of it. Yes, the pagans are acting like pagans. Yes, evil men will go from bad to worse. Yes, the God of this world rages. And yes, God will not be mocked. What a man reaps, he will sow. The judge of the earth will do right. We have God's wisdom, we have God's word, and we can live wisely in this difficult time if we rely upon it. The psalmist pauses from considering his suffering, if you want to turn back to Psalm 119, and he finds great solace and comfort in the, the certainty and the security of God's word. And I just encourage you to do the same thing. Believe, know that if you will cleave to God's law, God's word, and the God of the word, if you will make it your meditation, if you will endeavor to do it, you are going to be wiser than your enemies, wiser than your instructors, you are going to understand more than the aged. That is the advantage. of here's, here's one of the reasons why to love God's word. What an advantage that is. What an advantage that is. So his advantages from God's word. Next, point C, his application of God's word. And here we see, again, the point that wisdom can't be separated from doing. There is no wisdom that is only knowing. Knowing is a necessary component of wisdom. You can't do what you don't know. But if you just know stuff, you might be like those demons in James chapter 2. Oh, you believe that God is one. Even the demons believe and tremble. Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is like a one-winged plane. Not very useful. So his application of God's word. Um, Verse 101, I hold back my feet for, from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. So God's word has the advantage of giving wisdom, helping him to know and understand and interpret the world around him, knowing how to conduct himself in the world more so than his enemies, more so than his teachers, more so than the aged. 
And here he puts into practice that wisdom, which is what wisdom is, doing it. He keeps his feet back from every evil way. He's learning discipline, self-discipline, in order to keep your word. We shouldn't ask God to reveal his word to us, to give us wisdom, if we're not planning to act upon it. You want to come to God and say, God, I want to please you. I want to do what's right. Give me, give me the wisdom to know how to do that. James says, oh, God answers. He gives generously to all without reproach. But if you come to God saying, God, what do you want me to do? Maybe I'll do it. James also tells you what to make of that. You must ask without faith, without doubting. The one who doubts is like the waves of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect to receive anything from the Lord. So the psalmist here loves God's law. He meditates on God's law with a goal to keeping and doing God's law. I do not turn aside from your rules. And look at this. For you have taught me. Now in the Hebrew, the you is emphatic. You could translate this for you yourself have taught me. I mean, what a privilege. And we're in the new covenant where this reality is even greater for us. The psalmist is dependent on God to teach him. In one sense, God is teaching him because it's God's word. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. Some of these new covenant blessings, we have an even greater. We can even more greatly declare this. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. God has given us his spirit. You have the author of the word living inside of you, illuminating your mind. We just read in 1 Corinthians 2. We've received the spirit, not of the world, but from God. Why? That we might understand the things freely given to us. You can be taught by God the word of God. But if that's something you want, he's going to teach you so that you can do it. He's going to teach you so you can walk in it. And it gets back to what do we want? And if you want to be like Jesus, if you want to be holy, if you want to flee from sin, if you want to be righteous, this is good news. It's not good news if you want to do what you want and don't want people to tell you what to do. But now we're back to delighting in God's law. Now we're back to delighting in God's law. So that's seeing the wisdom of God's word. Just riches of wisdom. We understand life and what's going on. We understand the human heart. We understand why things happen the way they do. Now let's look in uh, verses 103 and 104. Savoring the sufficiency of God's word. Savoring the sufficiency. And here I think we're jumping to something more holistic and all-encompassing. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. It begins with his satisfaction with God's word. And again, we get the confession of it. It seems, again, like it's just pouring out. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When you see God's word as providing this superior wisdom, when you are living God's word, when you desire to be pleasing to God, his word is sweet to you. Now here... The psalmist is likely borrowing or referencing Psalm 19. It is conceivable it's the other way around, but here's some intertextuality. Psalm 19, verse 10 says this. 
More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's conceivable David wrote Psalm 119. We know he wrote 19. And it's conceivable he wrote 119 first. Unlikely, but conceivable. Either way, these two psalms interconnect here. This is a common theme of of sweetness. Note, it's not simply saying God's word is good food. I don't know about you. I've eaten good food that isn't sweet and enjoyable. Right? You've eaten things that your parents, you know this, eat is good for you, eat it, and your kid does not think it's sweet. Usually the choice is between what's sweet and tasty and bad for me and what's good for me. Here, God's word is food and it is delicious. The confession, how sweet are your words to my taste. And then even by comparison, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Honey being probably the sweetest thing in that day and age. And we've got all these refined sugars and candies, but honey's about as sweet as it gets in the Middle East, in the Old Testament. The sweetest thing that he can think of, God's word is sweeter than that. Um, t- turn to First Peter really quickly. This theme gets picked up again in the New Testament. We're going to get some insight again. If, if you're on the outside looking in, wanting this to be where your experience is, admitting this not where I'm at, I think First Peter, picking up on this theme, may also help give some insight in what you might do to help deal with that. First Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the help here is, if you want to use the the, um, food metaphor, there are some behaviors that may hamper your appetite. In the same way that as parents, I'll tell my children, no, you can't have a piece of fruit. Dinner's coming up. I don't want to ruin your appetite. He tells them, put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. So perhaps one of the reasons God's word isn't sweet to our taste is because we've ruined our appetite with garbage. Malice and envy and other things. God wants us delighting in his word. He doesn't want us sullen. Yes, okay. I suppose since you've saved me, I can read your word. He wants us delighting in it. He wants us in it like it's our favorite candy bar or our favorite soda, our favorite food. That's what he wants for us. And he, what he wants for us, he, he will give to us. This is something you can attain to. If this isn't where you're at right now, God wrote this song because he wants you to be there. He, he wants his people to feel this way about his word. This isn't just for super Christians. This is what we all should be attaining to. But it comes with the meditation and it comes with the keeping and the doing. It's a package deal. It's a package deal. His satisfaction with God's word. First his confession, then the comparison. Then we see his sanctification from God's word. His sanctification from God's word. And again, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Which is, again, repeating the the value of the wisdom. But I want you to notice something. The psalm, this section, begins with a confession of love. 
I love your law. What does it close with? A confession of hate. It's interesting. It's unrighteous not to hate some things. We tend to think in the culture we live in, love is always good, right? Love, love, it's the one thing the world needs more of. Well, that depends. What do you love? Do you love the world? That's not good. Do you love inflicting pain? That's not good. One of the things that I find helpful about um, the classical view of education, I'm not going to bring the whole thing in, but if, if you read some of the classic thinkers on education, the understanding was to form and shape the student to love what is lovely, to hate what is hateful. In other words, that they would have a right emotional and mental appraisal of things as they are. This has largely today been thrown out. It's much more, well, what, what do you like? And it's self-expression and what pleases you. This is why there are classes and classical music appreciation. Because yes, it was known. People don't automatically go, that's delightful. But the thought was, we should train you into someone who thinks it's delightful. I'm, I don't know. The Bible doesn't speak directly to classical music. It doesn't, Daniel. Um, he and I get in discussions. But... Certainly the Bible thinks about things that are true. Let's just make this thing. Is Jesus Christ lovely? Which means if you don't view him as lovely, you're wrong. Is righteousness beautiful? If you don't think so, you're wrong. Is sin ugly? If you don't think so, you're wrong. And so the challenge for us, and what classical education at least got somewhat right... I need to be molded so I love what is lovely. I need to be molded so I admire what is admirable, that I despise what is despicable, and that I hate what is hateful. There is a necessary hatred that if you don't have it, is wicked. And the psalm opens with a confession of love. Love and hatred, by the way, are flip sides of the same coin. My love for my wife will correspond exactly to my anger and my opposition to what would threaten her. Right? You get that. My love for God and his word will produce in me a corresponding hatred of evil. So you can work that backwards. If you find yourself not hating evil, it's an indication of a weak or non-existent love of God and his word. That's, that's what it is. An indication of a weak non-existent love of God's word. Loving God requires hating some things. And our God, who is love himself, hates some things. Earlier in the psalm, Psalm 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. It's godly to hate some things as long as you hate the right things. Hate evil, hate falsehood, hate sin, especially your own. It's too easy to hate that guy's sin. Start, start with your own sin. My own sin. But you, you need to hate. It's not enough just to know it's wrong. We're getting back to the full person, the affections. It's necessary to know it's wrong. But you're not where God wants you to be until you also hate it, which is emotional. His dedication. First is discernment, then his dedication. Therefore, I hate every false way. It's not as simple as just saying love's always good. What is it you're loving? Sin? 
That's not good. Demas forsook Paul because he loved, he was in love with the current world. So our, our section begins and ends with love and hate. Loving God's word will bring with it a hatred of every false way. I want to close with four points of application because I, I do recognize that for many of us, this is not where we're at. Or for many of us, this is frequently not where we're at. And God didn't put this section here to taunt you, to say, wouldn't it be lovely if you could be one of those really spiritual people who feels this way? But I guess you're not. Rather, I, I, I think he puts this here as an ideal for us to pursue. So, so quickly, four points of application. Seeking the application of God's word. That in shouldn't be there. Seeking the application of God's word. First and foremost, know how critical it is that you delight in God's word. This isn't optional for super Christians. Healthy children of God love God and they love his word. In fact, listen to how 2 Thessalonians describes those who perish and why they perish. 2 Thessalonians 2. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why are they perishing, Paul? Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. If you won't love the truth, you're going to perish. If you refuse to love the truth, you will perish. Now he equates loving the truth and believing the truth. It's not though I'm adding some new thing. I thought we're saved by faith. Yes, but an element of faith is delight. The demons, in one sense, James can say, believe they hate what they know to be true. The faith that saves is a faith that wants, it reaches out to, it takes hold of Christ by faith. He goes on to say, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. So he equates refusing to love the truth with not believing the truth. Which means there can't be a saving belief that isn't accompanied by love and delight. It may wax and wane, but man, it needs to be there. And and I find more often my Christian walk is about maintaining my affections properly. My heart begins to drift. I start loving other things. I start becoming indifferent to other things. And I get on my knees, get in the word, so that my feelings and affections resonate truly, loving what is lovely, hating what is hateful, delighting in what is delightful. So first of all, know this. Don't skip over this. Don't say, that's fine. I, I'm, in, I'm indifferent to truth. I know it's true. That's all that matters. God wants you to be able to sing this song, to pray this prayer. He wants you to. He wrote it for us to do and to say to him. And he didn't write it so we could lie to him. He means for this to be true of us. Know that. Second, ask. I know you can't love what you don't love. You can't make yourself love. That's what makes it difficult. We feel powerless when we know we should delight in something and we don't. And you are powerless. And he is powerful. The temptation is to give up on this because I can't make myself love what I don't love. And I don't think it'd be helpful to pretend I love what I don't love. I'm with you so far. So turn to the one who can and ask. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to the glories of his word. We've already seen this in Psalm 119. Go back to verse 18. Psalm 119, verse 18. I pray some version of Psalm 119, verse 18, just about every Sunday in my opening prayer. You may notice this. 
Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. If God doesn't open my eyes to see it, I'm not going to. I can't do it on my own. But just because you can't make yourself love what you don't love and delight in what you don't delight in doesn't mean you can't ask the one who can open your eyes and change your heart to do that. So the first step, this, this isn't optional. This is something we need, we need to steward and tend to our heart. We need to delight in God's word. And then we need to turn to him and say, okay, recognizing that if I'm not delighting in it, there's, that speaks to my deficiency, not God's word. And now, oh Lord, I got to admit this morning, I'm not that eager to read your word. Which means I'm not seeing it rightly. Lord, would you open my eyes that I could see glory? Would you unite my heart to fear your name? Would you establish your word as that which causes reverence for you? And pray and ask. Jesus told us if you ask, it'll be given. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it'll be opened unto you. He told us to to pray like a persistent widow, just banging and banging and banging on that door. That's what I'd encourage you to do. Third, be regularly and prayerfully feeding on his word. I think of Jacob wrestling with the angel, you know. Not going to let go to give me a blessing. And I'll, when I find my heart cold to God's truth, and I do, when I find his word not delightful, when God gives me the grace to realize the problem, I get in his word and like, Lord, I'm... I can't make myself see glory here if you don't show, but I'm not leaving till I do. We can't make the seed grow, but we can scatter it and scatter it and scatter it. We can get in it. We can be meditating on it. Not self-righteously. It doesn't matter. The self-righteous way of doing this is I'll skip over the delight and I just do it and I'm good. That's the self-righteous way. The, the sort of um, opposite mistake is it'd be hypocritical and pharisaical for me to read my Bible when I don't want to, so I won't. I think the right way to go is, Lord, I ought to delight in this. I ought to feel a privilege in having my own Bible. Most of God's people in all of history didn't. So I'm going to read it trusting that you bless your word, that you can work in spite of my blindness, that you can soften my heart. I think you read like that, God's pleased and God's honored by it. I think God answers those types of prayers. And finally, strive to obey his word. Strive to obey his word. Jesus makes an interesting statement in John thirteen seventeen. Most of the people I'm counseling with want the reverse. If God could make me feel like doing it, then I'd go do it. Jesus says, if you know these things... Blessed or happy are you if you do them. The happiness comes in the doing of them. And oftentimes in my experience, I see God waiting until I'm willing to take that first step of obedient faith and then he pours out the feelings and the blessing and the grace. These eight verses is where God wants his children to be, where God will give us the grace to be if we will call upon him, humble ourselves, it's not just for super Christians. This is for all of God's children. The book of Psalms is for all of his children to sing and pray. Um, to the love his word. For it to be sweet to our taste. And if that's not where you're at, you've got a heavenly father who is pleased to change your taste buds. Give you eyes that see and ears that hear if you just ask him. 
I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to have our closing song. Lord God, we, we pray that you would open our eyes. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Take our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh. Lord, we cannot love what we don't love. We cannot delight in what we don't find delightful. So, Lord, would you help us to see the glory in your word, the glory of your son in your word, that we would be captivated and enthralled by that glory, satisfied and delighted by that glory, and that we might be those who then act upon what we see. In Jesus' name, amen.